great job. Second Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. I know they enjoyed it tremendously because they all love Jesus and they play all their music to give him glory too. Bella. So thank you very, very much for that. Second Corinthians chapter 3. I thought we'd start this morning just by reading the whole chapter. It's short. And then we'll go back and continue to break it down in its pieces because it's so critical for the life health, the, the joyful existence, really, of people who have been made free in the grace of Jesus Christ. And as we all know, the Apostle Paul is addressing a Corinthian church that had been um, within itself disjointed in its walk. In a large part, that was because there were some false ones that were in the church that caused them to uh, doubt the confidence that they had in Christ, caused them to doubt uh, their triumphant Jesus and their walk with him, therefore influencing their own personal walk, the, the integrity of their church community, and their gospel outreach in their city. So this whole chapter is really about the comparison of a life lived under the law versus a life lived under grace. The final verse, the final line of the final verse we're considering this morning says, the, the life lived by the letter of the law kills. But the life lived by the Spirit and the renewal He brings in Christ, that's true life. One brings death, the other brings life. Because the Corinthian church had begun to be influenced by the Judaizers that we discussed last week, these false ones, they began to have their, their focus drift from freedom in Christ to that rigid keeping of the letter of the law, and their, their congregation was experiencing the oppression of the law. All right? So let's just kind of read through. What we're going to see here is throughout the whole chapter, really a comparison of the old law, the old covenant, and the new covenant. And then we'll go back and we'll just kind of go verse by verse, uh, applying this to our context here uh, at Grace Church. We read last week, are we beginning again to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You are our letter written with our written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And this will be our text this morning, verses 4 through 6. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. 
For indeed, what had glory in this case had no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of that which was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's only removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And when the Spirit of the, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there truly is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So you see this compare and contrast all the way through the text. The old covenant, which had glory and had splendor because it was God's covenant, is insufficient to transform a soul. Like we said last week, no human standard or no God-given divine standard by itself can change a heart. It can't transform a heart by grace. It can convict the heart. That's the splendor that the law of God has under the old covenant. It can convict. But remember, the law of God is that schoolmaster that compels us to look to the grace of Christ for forgiveness because we are all imperfect law keepers. So that's why the compare and contrast. The Corinthian people needed this. Paul knew that they had began to lose their, um, their influence as a local church for the gospel because they began to waver again because of the influence, like I said earlier, of the Judaizers. So there was some integrity in their ministry that had begun to be lost because they started to function, at least a portion of them did, according to rules and regulations and mere religiosity rather than free grace in Christ, which gives, it gives way to growth in Christ-likeness once a heart's transformed. So this could be a dangerous thing. But the compare and contrast here shows the value of both the glory of the old covenant but a greater glory of the new. In Jesus Christ and we'll just discuss this for the next few weeks that we are together okay all right let's continue on here uh, let's focus on matters here in relationship to life and death in the church last week we looked at the external external internal let's look at matters of life and death here found in verses 4 through 6 in life, we find ourselves comparing valuable things all the time. Which college am I going to choose? I have a daughter who's about to commence her senior year in high school. And like many of you who took uh, the ACT and possibly the SAT, if you scored reasonably well, what starts coming in the mail, right? Stacks and stacks and stacks. If you're taking those college entrance exams, earlier as a ninth grader or a tenth grader you're getting stacks and stacks of mail and you have these these options to consider you might have 25 30 options and you whittle those down to three and then you pray 
all right? And you investigate which school that I choose has a solid local church that's going to shepherd the, my heart the way my church does because it's never God's will for us to choose a school if there's not a church to take care of our heart in town. I get down to two. There's two solid local churches there. God, which one, right? Compare and contrast of two good things. Two good things. And then you choose the one that you feel best fits your course of study and the life you would like to develop in Christ-likeness. I remember the first time we were going to buy our, a home. Same thing. You guys have... Zillow now and so many different ways to, from satellite, get views of neighborhoods, let alone lists of homes within your price range. And it's a lot more simple and efficient for you now, but it used to take a long time to, to, to list out all these homes and then narrow them down to two and then look at the floor plans, look at maybe the floor plans in light of a, a family God might give you and what you might need and spatialization for the future and how long could we live here if God gives us one, two, or three children you're comparing, and then you settle on the one that's maybe best for your situation and not better. Comparison of two good things. Guys, we all went through that when we were looking at engagement rings, didn't we? Careful, careful evaluation. Like this morning, I was in trauma even. I was wondering, hey, what would be better to soothe my soul a blueberry or cinnamon raisin bagel with my coffee. <laughs> I'm like, really like both of them, like a lot. So which one for this? Which one did I choose? This morning it was cinnamon raisin. I felt very cinnamony this morning. I loved preaching during quarantine. I loved the fact that you were listening and we were worshiping together, even if it was an electronic means. That was good. It may even be better. But I'll tell you what, this is best. Comparison and contrasting of two good things. Life always presents itself with comparisons and evaluation moments. Again, both may be quality options, but really, for our personal reasons, truly only one will work. In a veritably real spiritual sense... This is what Paul does for us throughout 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He's comparing something of great value with something of greater spiritual value. All for the protection of the Corinthian believers. As we said earlier, the Judaizers, the religious externalists, the peddlers of strict, strict adherence to Old Testament law keeping, the souls that held to a performance-based foundation for their living had become part of the Corinthian church from within and from without. We read last week, if you go back, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that particular sermon, in chapters 10 and 11, about these religious folks and their motives, their methods, and their influence in the church. They sought to unsettle those in the flock who had been truly transformed by grace by convincing them that Jesus wasn't enough. They sought to once again convince souls that a rigid keeping of the law was essential to their commitment to Christ. As we saw previously last week, they were merely externalists. They would reference often the letter of the law 
as compared to free grace in Christ, therefore confounding and confusing the true believer in the local church. Obviously, these religious racketeers had quite an influence on the church, and Paul's apostolic authority had been dismissed by some, bringing them to the very verge of rejecting Paul's authoritative gospel message of grace and unduly criticizing him in his ministry. But the Holy Spirit compels Paul to write a compare and contrast analogy of law and grace in order to grab the attention of those adversely affected by the Judaizers' eloquent message. And here we've read 18 verses comparing the old and the new. And as we read through all 18 verses a few minutes ago, we all began to see the comparisons jump off the page of the two. Paul utilizes this compare and contrast method to particularly remind the church that Jesus saves fully by grace and not by mere human adherence to standards. He's saying in various comparisons that no law, no standard, no regulation can save a soul, let alone strict adherence to it. There may be some lasting value, and there is some lasting value to the moral code of God. The law of God, the law of Moses, the Old Covenant did contain the moral decalogue of God, the Ten Commandments. Certainly there's value there. There was splendor there. There was glory there. Thou shalt not commit yourself to adultery. Thou shalt not be involved with premeditated murder. Don't have any other gods before me. Thou shalt not commit adultery, and so forth and so on. There's glory there. There's splendor there. Those are the moral expectations of divinity. But adherence to any one of those will not save you. And they're given to prove to us our imperfection. None of us have been able to adhere to those, or should I say any one of those, perfectly in our lifetime. And yet they are moral expectations that broken humanity like you and me, apart from Christ, cannot attain to. This is why these Judaizers had such an influence in Corinth and in Galatia too. You can read the book of Galatians certainly confronts them there in the church of Galatia. Certainly the moral code of God has value. It's from God, but its value is to reveal to each of us that we can only imperfectly live God's moral requirements, therefore showing us our need for something better in comparison. The religious were certainly speaking of the splendor of the law of God, but they only spoke of the splendor of the law of God, leaving their message replete with man's ability to save themselves and please God on their own. It was indeed a glamorous, but eternally destructive message. Certainly it was the promotion of men. Certainly it was the development of egos but it was an eternally destructive message.
Again, in verses 1 through 3 last week, Paul describes the mere external approach of life of the Judaizers, and he compared it to those who had accepted God's grace by the power of the Spirit of God, who had experienced internal miraculous transformation of the heart. So today, we consider another comparison in verses 4 through 6. Paul clearly states that adherence to just the splendor of the law brings death, but through Christ, our adequacy to live holy lives and to please God comes from God in Christ. Look at verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God. Now, obviously, he's crescendoing from verses 1 through 3. Where does the believer truly find its confidence to honor God? Confidence, literally in the Greek language, is the first word of this verse. And it simply means to believe in something or someone to the extent of placing your full reliance or trust on that person. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. We've already preached through this, but let's go back and kind of get a little bit of a personal picture of how Paul used the same word here in a practical context. Go back up to verse 8 here for a little context. 2 Corinthians 1, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Remember that? He goes on to say, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves. There's that word. We would not have confidence in ourselves. But there's that popular adversative Paul uses throughout the book of 2 Corinthians, but we would trust in God who raises the dead. There's a clear line of demarcation there. When you're in that type of deep turmoil, you are not sufficient at all to sustain your life spiritually or physically. It's God only who can and will and does do that, right? So he's saying now in a pure spiritual context, our confidence is only towards God in Jesus Christ. Go over to Philippians chapter 3. I think it's an appropriate cross-reference because Paul is speaking here his own personal testimony, formerly being a Judaizer. Verse 2, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2, we're going to find the word we're discussing in verse 4, he says, Beware of the dogs. Those are the Judaizers. He used to be one of them. Beware of those that seek to come in and tear you up a little bit. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. The false circumcision, for those of you who are newer to Christ, that's just simply Old Testament Jews that would be physically circumcised, but still desire to be saved by the law keeping rules, keeping religious standards. Paul knows now as a converted former Judaizer that the true genuine circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart. So he's calling the Judaizers here false circumcision. But the true circumcision, these folks worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although 
I myself might have confidence even in the flesh if for anyone else, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far, far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found what? That's exactly what a Judaizer believes. He's speaking his former life. He thought he was living the law perfectly. They're proclaiming sinlessness by adherence to standards. And it's, it's death. It's death. So these two cross-references, in addition to verse 4, as we go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 of our passage this morning, leaves us with an understanding here there's no middle ground. There's no halfway gray zone option here between law and grace. This confidence we have, or confidence, the grammar here shows a constant reality for the believers. Confidence we are always having in Christ towards God. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. For Paul and those saved in the Corinthian church, God's grace is enjoyed because of the internal change brought about by the Holy Spirit to help them fully entrust their hearts and lives to Christ. Grace in Christ had become a greater splendor than rigorously and always imperfectly attempting to live in strict adherence to the law. My dad always taught me growing up that rules without relationships always leads to rebellion. And that's true. That's true in this religious sense. Constant adherence to the rules of the law of Moses leaves us really devoid of true, genuine, transformational relationships among God's people because we will never experience, as we focus on the law, true life in Christ first. This is true in our families, isn't it? You can have your chores list. You can have your mowing schedule of the lawn, and that's essential. You can have your rules for the kids and for the family and keeping the garden. In Pastor Mike's house, it's always going to be taking care of the chickens, right? Helping clean up after dinner and keep a tidy room as possible. These are all good disciplines, but what if these discipline requirements were the nature and makeups exclusively of your home? What if everyone exclusively, exclusively valued the other only based on how well they did their chores? Mercy. A lot of tension in our homes, right? Like when I was growing up, my brother John, he was my dad's alter ego, right? And he loved what my dad loved. I did not love what my dad loved. My dad loved working on cars, and he loved working a garden. You would find my brother John as like his shadow, 
My brother John was my dad's mini-me. I would often go out and find him underneath the car trying to figure out how dad loosened the nut to let the oil drip out of the oil pan into a big pan, right? He would slide himself under on his own little back cart, whatever you call those things, under the car, and there would be dad, and there would be John, right? John would follow him out to the garden, and John liked to keep the garden. I didn't. I love to play basketball. And so when my dad would have us both go to the garden, I would say that, okay, that sounded like a calling for me to play basketball. <laughs> I didn't hear garden or go work. I just didn't hear it. John went to the garden and I went to the basketball court. That went over real well in our home for a long time. In all seriousness, in a spiritual sense, in Christ, Living life is not merely and exclusively maintaining a list of religious chores. Even though they be morally sound. All of my imperfections are made right though in Christ the moment I'm born again, the moment you're born again. And in him I stand towards God, literally in the face of God, I'm okay because I am in the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ. So how does this affect our living, our teaching, or our loving of one another in our flock? Well, we live in and by grace, therefore making us gracious people. Grace is gracious. So those who know their imperfections well, but are imputed with Christ's undeserved righteousness, live graciously in every context of their life. We are in Christ, so we learn Christ, so we can live Christ, and he is the ultimate gracious one. Law keepers, well, they're just not gracious people. They will fawn graciousness. I call it faux graciousness. They'll come in eloquently. They'll come in sharply dressed. And they know their subject matter. And they're winsome. And they're compelling. But merely preaching the law, apart from grace, leaves the flock dead. Rule keepers, those who look on man's outward appearance instead of investing time to get to know the human heart, well, they tend to be quite impatient and unkind over time. What about the way we teach? Remember, when Paul wrote his letters, he wrote to saved, forgiven, grace-filled people. Primary application here to pastor, teachers, and teachers in our flock, but equally applicational to those who are discipling each other. What about those who learn and teach the Word of God together? How does grace, the grace of Christ, change us? Well, since Jesus Christ is gracious, when we sit down to preach, to teach, or to share the Word of God with one another, we need to be equally gracious with one another. Certainly, Paul addressed sin in the lives of the saints that he taught and preached to and wrote to, but never at the expense of who they were in Christ first. 
please grab this if you grab nothing else this morning. The teacher preacher who sounds like a law keeper. A Judaizer is one who constantly harps on the sins of the saints at the expense of exalting Christ who by the Holy Spirit has transformed their lives to no longer live under the power of sinful choices and consequences. For those of us who grew up in Christian camp environments, which we all love and appreciate, they have their value in our pasts for sure. But in those contexts, many, not all of those contexts, we had law-keeping preaching. We did not have pastors or evangelists getting up, exalting Christ or our position in Christ first. They would dive right to our imperfections and right to our lack of law-keeping to the moral code of God. And therefore, some kids permanently were altered in their life for God because they were always brought to the place of doubting whether they were even in Christ. It affects the way we love. It affects the way we teach. Christ, always Christ, be honored, loved, and exalted in everything. Everything he's first. So yes, this confidence I have in Christ towards God is the same confidence you have too. <laughs> We all have it. What does Psalm 30 say? Is it Psalm 30, 33? Without forgiveness, who could stand? I mean, really? Everything we do, it's only because of Christ. So, teach and preach Christ. Build relationships around Him and His Word and His sufficiency. There and only there will the grace of God be on full display in transformational living. It will develop a patience with me with you, you with me, and you with each other. That's what grace does as we pursue Christ-likeness. The emphasis of standard first and Christ second, even after our souls are saved, is defeating, discouraging, and ultimately fully distracting. A standard first and Christ second approach to life and ministry also has a tendency to inflate egos. There's always going to be someone who does something better than me. Legalism would have us discern our value by how well we do compared to others. Friends, that's just a ministry that's headed right off an ecclesiastical cliff. And so we love each other. The confidence of Christ's perfection that's been imputed to us rather than seeking practical perfection in one another first. If we ever get personally exhausted working with another believer in our church, we may get, or should I say, may we get tapped out searching for how Christ is working in them, not by tiring of their inability to keep up with the rhythms of performance in our assembly. We love in Christ. 
We love in the patience of Christ, with the graciousness of Christ. We love with the assumptions of Christ in each other who intercedes for us before God, pleading his own righteousness on our behalf. And if we're going to be Christ-like, why don't we do the same? So thank you, Grace Church of Menor, for loving each other in the Spirit. Thank you for being part of something here that has changed over time, I believe, towards appreciating the grace of the new covenant in Christ. Keep moving in that direction more and more. So we confidently learn, live, and love Christ, and by his grace, we have a, a better way to exist compared to mere adherence to religious rules and regulations. Verse 5 is powerful, too. He goes, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. I wonder if Paul is speaking in verse 4 of a, uh, for those of you that have known doctrine a little bit longer, our position in Christ, and he's moving now more specifically to our practice and our personal ministry in Christ in verse 5. Consider Paul's exclusive statement here, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. The word adequate here just simply means a degree of a sufficiency, but it's really a degree of ultimate sufficiency. Ultimate sufficiency. What I mean by that is um, that one or the other has to be enough. And Paul is saying here very, very clearly, we are not enough in ourselves. We're not. To consider anything as coming from us that's enough spiritually to fill the voids in our souls and the holes in our hearts. We can't do it. You can't do it for me. But by the grace of God and the working of the Holy Spirit who places us into Christ at salvation, we find out that God is enough. Only he can fill every hole, void, gap in our souls and in our hearts completely. I'm so glad to say I can't do that for you. And I know you're glad that I could say you can't do that for me. Go back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 real quickly here. In verse 6, we studied the individual who had been put out of the church, who now is right with God, right? Desiring fellowship again. Remember that? Paul states that his discipline was equal to his transgression. He's forgiven now. He wants fellowship, and he's saying, let him back in. He's saying, enough is enough. So just by way of a practical comparison here, if you look at verse 6, a little context in verse 5, but if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much to all of you, sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted on him by the majority. There it is. Sufficient. It was enough. It was enough. There, there's no, uh, there's no uh, combining of law and grace in relationship even to restoring a true believer to fellowship in the local church. And that's the idea here. Just like the repentant sinner of chapter 2, we are him in our mindsets, in our heart sets, like all the time. Think about that. 
So it's never going to be, you know, Joe so-and-so who, or Sally so-and-so who were once disciplined out of the church that were received back in, right? It's not like they're always going to be, oh, well, they're in Christ and they're in the church, but they were, they were the ones that we disciplined at one point. That's not the idea. Paul's saying here in verse number five that we, having never been disciplined out of the church, always walk around with that mindset and that heart set that that repentant, once disciplined believer had as he wanted to be restored into the local church. I'm amazed I haven't been disciplined out. I'm amazed that I'm even here still, fellowshipping with these glorious ones of God. So even the past and distressions and transgressions now forgiven and restored into the local church, these souls, those are like, yeah, it's like it never happened. Wasn't for the grace of God, maybe. And it's working in my heart by the governance of the Spirit, I'd be in the same place. We live our lives being reminded we are not adequate. We are not enough. Like we're never enough. Why? Because of the next phrase, because God is our adequacy. I love this change of direction again, Paul uses. There is no gray matter in this transition. In Paul's comparison, of someone who lives their lives full of life rather than death, he's clearly stating that the true abundant life finds its complete adequacy from God. God in Christ is enough. And we sing that hymn, don't we? Not I but Christ. Not I but Christ be honored, loved, exalted. Not I but Christ be seen and known and heard. Not I but Christ in every look and action. Not I but Christ in every thought and word. So Paul goes on to explain in the text that we've already read this morning. It is God who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. Not the letter of not the letter, but the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Our completeness has been gifted to us. It has been graced to us. It is God who made. That's what the text says. At the point, the grammar here says, at the point of your conversion, God subjectively graced you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ by the omnipotent regeneration of the Holy Spirit in God, that's what we call the born-again moment. And from that moment forward, God made you there the moment you're born again. And you are still enjoying that subjective divine act upon your heart today as you were back then and you will enjoy it until you see Jesus God made you adequate in Christ alone you are not adequate at all I am not adequate at all in anything if I have any adequacy it's only in Jesus Christ that's it. That's it. But the Judaizers come in. The externalists come in. And boy, they want to make you impressive. 
They want to tell you how, you how good you are at something. They want to draw the attention from looking vertic uh, uh, vertically to horizontally. They exalt man and ability to hold on to standards rather than Christ. Dangerous. So he made us adequate, but then what did he do? He made us servants of a new covenant. It's the Greek word where we get English word deacon. God has made us servants in a new community of faith, in the local church, in this time, in this era, in this dispensation. We're going to look more exclusively at the description of the new covenant in weeks ahead and its greater glory than the old covenant, I assure you. But for today, we conclude by stating that we are servants in a life community, not a death community. Everyone here is not on spiritual hospice. We're all alive in Christ, forever alive in Christ. We walk in triumph continually in Christ. We'll study together the splendor of the old covenant in the Mosaic system for sure. And it had splendor because it came from God. But the righteous standards from God given to men could not perfectly be kept by men. And they were perfectly kept by Christ, the triumphant law keeper, telling us why we need him. So, until a heart is humbled by their inability to keep the law, the righteous splendor of a holy God, they will pridefully seek to adhere to the law, which is forever a reminder to them of their imperfect ability to keep it. And those in Christ will forever be a savor of death unto death for them. The splendor of the first and the old covenant is in its divine ability to remind souls they can't keep it, therefore becoming everyone's schoolmaster, the law, the old covenant, leading them to Christ. And that's where the Spirit gives life. So as we continue through these compare and contrasts in this chapter, continue on the trajectory that you're on and how you're living and loving one another in Christ. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9-11, through 11, to a community of people that really knew how to love each other. He says to the Thessalonian believers, I don't have to tell you how to love one another because you are taught of God how to love one another. Only increase more and more. You're only taught of God how to love one another when you've received the love of Christ. In Him, we value each other. So your value to me is not what you do for me. Your value to me is, is who you are in Christ. And I don't think that's sticky to say. What you do for me by loving me, loving each other, shepherding each other, you're doing it because you have faith in Christ. You're showing your faith by your works. 
So at Grace Church of Matter, you love each other well. I'm confident if the canon of Scripture was still open and Paul was alive and he was to write a letter to the church and mentor, he would say, you're loving each other well because you're taught of God how to love one another. Only increase more and more. And for those of you who struggle with being old covenant people, if you struggle with being gracious to the flock, whether biological in your own family or spiritual here in the local church. If you struggle in being gracious, the problem's probably not with the people you're struggling with. The problem's with you. Because you're evaluating them on their successes and their failures and their own God doesn't do that. So stop. value all of them equally in Jesus Christ and then let's love, live and teach from that standpoint, okay? That's what keeps the church trustworthy, that's what keeps the church full of divine and spiritual integrity as we move forward Father in heaven, we love you, thank you so much for the simplicity of your word we thank you for these compare and contrasts that show us the old versus the new Greater splendor versus greatest splendor. Pray, Lord, as we continue to study this text together, we would all, as your children, continue to evaluate our efforts to exalt Christ in everything that we think, say, and do, and then offer the rest of the flock the same benefit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.